It doesn't matter if you're a seasoned rider planning a trip or you're just starting out in adventure motorcycling, you should be thinking about this. What are the essential tools and skills I need for adventure riding? And today, that's what we're talking about. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free, maxbmw.com. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Jim Hart. Liz Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. You know, as we started pulling this episode together, we made lists of what could be included, and it got fairly extensive, including more tools and skills as we went. But as we worked through it, we realized that although there's plenty of things that could be included, they weren't essential. I mean, it's great if you can use a multimeter to diagnose electrical problems, or you're comfortable pulling your your stator cover off, or your carburetor apart on the side of the road. But the fact is, those are more advanced skills. And although they could get you running and back on the trail again, it's not really essential skills. And think about it. How many times have you had a breakdown like that? If you count one, maybe two, two would be probably on the high side. If you count more than that, you're either riding a bike that's very poorly maintained or, or maybe you've run a, a huge, huge number of miles over many, many years. The same goes for tools. I mean, if you don't know how to use the tool, if it's not something you can use probably, you know, in several different ways, there probably isn't much point in carrying it. Having said that, I remember Grant Johnson talking uh, on our RAW program one time. He mentioned that he had met somebody who had all kinds of tools in his panniers, but he had no mechanical skills at all. And what he said was he would find someone that knows how to do the repairs, yet doesn't have the tools, and he, he can use his tools. Well, that's one approach, but I don't think it's very practical. And that extra weight of parts and tools could actually cause a problem, maybe a broken subframe or maybe making you wallow in, in some section that was what, that was technical and the bike is just so heavy to maneuver. Um, Sam Manicom, for instance, on his round-the-world trip, he carried tons of spare parts for his R80GS. He didn't use hardly any of them. And as a matter of fact, people who met him and saw all these parts that he had would, would often joke that and tell other people, if you need a part for your R80GS, contact Sam because he's got them all on his bike. And he still has some of those parts that he was carrying around his round-the-world trip. So at some point, you have to decide what is essential and what is overpacking when it comes to tools. And if you've ever packed for even an overnight trip, you probably found yourself throwing in those extras. You know, you've got one flashlight, but you throw in another one and another one just in case you have a failure. So it's getting down to essentials. That's what we're talking about, essential ADV 
tools and skills. So I decided to give Jim Hyde a call to see what he has to say on the subject. Jim is the founder uh, and owner of Rawhide Adventures, which is probably one of the most recognized adventure training schools in North America, uh, if not the largest. Jim is a certified BMW factory trained instructor and um, runs two huge operations for adventure motorcycle training. Now, training people for adventure riding is what they do. They do it in a big way. In fact, Part of their training is dealing with ADV essentials. Jim, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Jimmy, it's good to be back with you. Thanks for uh, thanks for bringing me in today. Where are you right now? I am sitting uh, in the middle of the Mojave Desert at, at uh, our latest facility that we call Zakar. And uh, the reason we're here is that from our front or back door, we can go 100 miles in any direction and uh, and go play. Uh, there's uh, not a lot of pavement out here, just nothing but dirt roads and trails. And so we've been building a, we have a hundred acres out here and we're building a, a new facility uh, to serve the adventure community. My vision here is picturing you from a, an aerial shot sitting in one of those folding chairs in the middle of nothing on your <laughs> cell phone <laughs> talking to me. You no, know, so you, you must be out there for one of, one of a few uh, reasons, I guess, play, work, or maybe you just have nothing else um, to do. No, I'm scrambling frantically um, because of several things. I just returned from a two-week trip in South America, and our biggest event of the year is coming up um, called Adventure Days, and um, I'm not in a lounge chair. I'm actually sitting in my motor home. <laughs> I, I like my vision better. But, <laughs> what, what, I, I've seen a bunch come up about Adventure Days. I, you're, you're, I mean, I've seen stuff on social media. What's that all about? Um, well, it's funny. It's um, it's so parallel with what our discussion today is going to be about. Um, Adventure Days is an educational, a three-day educational event that's just designed to give people the tools to go have adventures um, because there's so much more to the story. I mean, we as a company run a training program to give people rider skills, but you also need to know what to carry, how to communicate, how to navigate, what happens if you bang yourself up, a little bit of first aid knowledge. In Adventure Days, we have 50 different classes and clinics to help people prepare for taking trips, whether globally or locally. So that's the whole purpose of Adventure Days. Wow, 50 classes. you, you got to be expecting a lot of people. Yeah, we're going to have four or 500 people and. um Whoa. I've got 30, I've got 30 or I think 35 presenters. Some of them are doing different, you know, a couple or three different talks, but everything from how to do a basic tire repair, put a plug in it, which many people have never done to actually how to pull a tire off the rim, how to beat a rim back into shape. If you hit a rock too hard and lose all your air, a mil, you know, I, I will say a million, but really 50 or 60 different classes. When is this? Uh, March 12th through the 14th. Hmm. Well, and of course, like you said, paralleling what we're talking about here, because what we're talking about here is essential adventure. Or I want to say ADV, essential tools and skills. And the reason I'm saying ADV is because I think a lot of people are starting to see this separation in the wording, the nomenclature for adventure motorcycling. Often adventure motorcycling is seen as everything. But I think as we start to narrow things down, some people will see adventure motorcycling as going off the beaten path, um, be it on a trip or be it on a weekend or even just a day trip. Whereas motorcycle travel is the other thing where you're actually traveling around the world, which the two can go together. Does that make sense to you? Well, it totally makes sense. And, uh, here in the, uh, you know, I had an epiphany if I could sidetrack just a bit, but it'll tie together. I was in South America a couple of years ago, riding in Bolivia and, uh, 
We were transiting the country. We were just simply going across the, the country of Bolivia, but only, this is it, single digit, 2% of Bolivia's roads are paved. So what we look at as ADV, where we are out seeking the road less traveled, that is the everyday reality of, of people in countries like Bolivia. Bolivia, Argentina, Peru, most of their roads are unpaved. And uh, we call it ADV because most of our roads are, are paved and we're looking for the place where, you know, the hordes of people are not. Mm-hmm. Down there, it, you know, if you're traveling, you're going to be on dirt roads that here in the U.S. we would call ADV roads. So I don't know if that ties together the way the way you were thinking about. Well, yeah, no, it does. And it's sort of an adventure thing, isn't it? I mean, the reason we're looking for that is because we're looking for something that's going to take a higher skill level. Usually something, I think that's really what it comes down to, doesn't it? it it's the... Um, it's the thrill of overcoming something, you know, getting in somewhere where maybe it shouldn't even be. I agree with you. Um, accomplishment, you know, that's, uh, you know, people, people feel a sense of empowerment when they are able to get to a place that most others would not go. Um, you know, there's a certain point where we all joke about the Harley guys, but some of them will go dirt road traveling, but at at some point they're going to turn around and we will continue. And we, sort of chortle to ourselves that, you know, we, uh, we feel empowered by doing that. Mm-hmm. Until we're awesome. sitting with our, our six or 700 pound bike in a ditch somewhere miles from nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when we second guess our choice. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Well, let's let's look at this. Um, We're we're looking at uh, ADV Essential Tools and Skills. So let's start off with the rider, and then we'll talk about the bike. Um, What what do you see as sort of your list of essential skills for the rider? What do do you need as a rider before you start heading off into the backcountry, so to speak? Those areas where um, harder to get into, harder to get out, and certainly harder to get help. Sure. Well... Essential skills, um, they're, they're riding skills. Um, the dynamics of riding a 600-pound motorcycle in the dirt are completely different than the street. So there are some foundational skills that people need to understand. They have to understand the value of standing comfortably on the pegs and using your body weight to control the point where um, the traction point because you need to maximize traction when you're off-road. You've got, let's say, whatever a good, clean asphalt surface is, that's 100% of your tire's ability to maintain traction. When you get into the dirt, it's slipperier. And so in order to maximize traction, you have to have your body weight over what we call the contact patch. And that requires you to move differently on the bike than you would on the street. It's the fundamentals. Um, You need to know how to do a counterbalance turn rather than on the street where you lean into a turn as you're sweeping through some twisties we do a completely different move in the dirt. So having some foundational riding skills, number one. Okay. So foundational riding skills, I, I guess what we could throw in with that is when we could say that, you know, you're obviously going to be standing, I think is, is really, really important, obviously. Um, so is clutch and brake use. So you need to be proficient to some degree, uh, really in parallel with the degree of difficulty that you're heading into. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and one other thing, Jim, I'll tell you, it, uh, to me, and I say this in all of our classes, judgment is as valuable a skill as actually knowing how to ride the bike. So people need to be able to look ahead, see something coming and say to themselves, I can do this because I have the skill or maybe this is where I should turn around. Judgment. 
Hey, now I'm going to go, you know, off topic here a little bit, but when you come to a spot like that, is that an opportunity to increase your skill level by pushing yourself a little bit? Or is that a time to realize that's a skill I need to master at a more, in a more controlled environment? Um, If you're alone, here's, I'm, I'm, I am a risk averse person because um, A, I'm not uh, 30 anymore. um, uh, And B, I'd rather not break a bone and uh, come back and try it again another day. So to your question, I would say, if you were with some friends and you had someone who could help or go, uh, go, go, go get an ambulance if you make a big mistake, that's one thing. But if you are by yourself and you are looking ahead at something that's significantly challenging, you have to weigh the risk. If, um, if this goes bad, now what? Mm. Maybe it's time to turn around. I like your reference to 30 because you're not even close to 30. You haven't seen 30 for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm six, I'm 63 these days. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay, so other skills. Okay. So when it comes to the, the rider's personal gear, maybe we can just sort of quickly go through a very rough list and talk about them. Like, like you know, obviously we need boots and, and helmet and gloves and stuff. So maybe you can give a rundown on just the rider standing there off the bike. Sure. Um, we need a pair of good enduro type boots, motocross or enduro boots that come up to just below the knee. So you've got, you know, some, some mid calf ankle protection. Um, you need a good pair of riding pants that have uh, some padding at the hip and at the knees, uh, a decent riding jacket with padded elbows and shoulders, uh, preferably uh, a little bit of armor in the back as well, in case you fly off the bike. Um, any helmet will do. But having a helmet with a visor uh, to shade your eyes when you're riding into the afternoon sun, that would be helpful. Um, I prefer to ride with a, f- a face shield rather than goggles, but that becomes a personal preference matter. Um, a good set of gloves with knuckle protection, um, not just like worker leather gloves or something. I've seen guys come off a bike and they're their, their hand gets trapped beneath the handlebar for a second and it just rips their knuckles. So having some good knuckle protection is important. Um, I think that covers the rider with the exception of a hydration pack or something. You've got to drink while you're riding. You just need to, you need to stay hydrated. Right. And, and that's a personal choice, I guess, as far as where you, where you carry your water. I love having my water on my back um, on a pack so that I can just take a drink as I go. But again, that's, that's personal. I want to ask you about the gear yep. now because the, the gear the gear that you described there, that's your typical adventure motorcycle gear where you wear it riding anywhere you ride. People who are riding off-road, for instance, if they're riding a dual sport bike or a strictly off-road bike, they'll wear things like lightweight jerseys with full armor underneath. What do you see as the difference between the two? And do you think that one is a crossover? I mean, can we use either one? Um, I tend to go with the suit, um, but they are heavier. And they're hotter. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that's just a personal preference item. I know that uh, a couple companies are beginning to shift their focus and they're getting away from the full armored suit and they're creating an exoskeleton that you can pull a shell over. Um, so it, there's, there's so many options out there. You know, the, the classic dirt rider thing with fox elbow pads and knee pads with a jersey and a chest plate. Um, a, a Liat brace is something some folks go for. I don't wear one, but uh, it's like a neck brace. Yeah, a neck brace to keep your head from snapping too far forward or back in the case of a dismount. Um, I just think it's a personal preference item. And 
whether it's an exoskeleton and a jersey or a riding suit with built-in armor, they serve the same purpose. Mm. I guess um, the big difference between the two is the dual sport setup with the jersey and stuff. That The only thing I guess you're missing there is um, probably rain protection, but also abrasion protection. You really don't have any with that. No, you the gravel will cut through the jersey in a heartbeat, but mm. if you have armor on underneath, then you're fine. Yeah, you're, I mean, your your important parts are okay, but you could still end up with some pretty good rash. Yes, you could. But again, I think that becomes, for me, I wear the suit all the time. Um, and some folks uh, are a little more of a gambler. So I guess it's how much skin are you willing to risk? When it comes to going down a list for the rider, uh, we talked about having some sort of communication device. Um, by the way, do you carry a communication device? You're, you're, you're not wearing your, your sat phone, are you? That's in your gear? Sat phone. So I, I do two things. I have a, um, an in-reach device that I wear on my jacket mm. in case I get launched from the bike and maybe break a leg and can't get back to the bike. Um, but I keep the, I keep the, uh, the sat phone in a very rugged case in my, in my saddlebag. Right. Okay. That's what I was going to say. Cause if you did come off your bike, you got to think, will you still have your, your satellite communicator, whatever choice you have with you, uh, you know, and I think there's a much higher yeah. chance if you can manage to find a place to carry yeah. it on your body. Yep. Well, so I guess, you know, one, one, there's a philosophy of riding too. Do you ride alone or do you ride with people? Myself, I do a lot of riding alone. See, and I don't. I'm almost 99% of the time in the company of others. Mm -hmm. So if you have riding buddies and you ride together, then you don't need to have that on your person. Your buddy's going to look out for you. He'll be able to send a message, whatever. So there's that decision process to go through too. Mm, that, that that's a good point. Um, any other skills? Um, well, uh, now this is essentials, so, you know, we're, we're not talking everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No core writing skills. Um, we need some way to figure out where we're at. Okay. Um, because, and so a DPS, uh, and knowing how to use it, that's a skill. That's an essential skill because it's great to have one. It's really great when you want to go to the gas station or, or whatever. Um, but in the back country, I'll give you a, for example, let's say you are, uh, you're out and about and everything is great. And you've uh, traveled 30 miles into the back country and you've taken a ton of lefts and rights on little dirt roads. And, and then suddenly you have a, some sort of a mechanical that uh, forces you to kill a few hours and suddenly the sun goes down. Once you don't have any light to see your points of reference, it gets really confusing. Uh, I have seen perfectly rational people panic when they realize that they just can't remember all the lefts and rights they took getting in wherever they are. So being able to navigate and knowing how to use your GPS and knowing how to use what's called the track back feature, if nothing else, is to me a pretty critical thing for somebody who is going to be in the boondocks. Mm, that, excellent, excellent point. And, and I like what you said about when it gets dark, because when it gets dark, you lose your three-dimensional aspect of your horizon, of your surroundings. During the day, you look at it, you see all the different shades, you see the different colors. But as soon as darkness comes, all you get is silhouettes and it totally changes. Well, but to me, more importantly, is you lose your landmarks. Mm -hmm. You know, you've been riding all day towards the big mountain that's out there, but when you can't see it, You've, you're, you're disoriented. You just, you've lost orientation. Right. So um, having navigational skills is a pretty important thing if you're going to go drifting around in the boonies or ride with somebody who has them. 
Now, I know we're, we're going to talk about skills that we have to apply with tools as well. Um, but are there any other skills that, that come to mind that you think that we need? Well, so we're, only, we're not talking about tools and things yet. We're just talking about skills. Yeah. Judgment, writing skills, navigational skills. You know, a, a little basic first aid is really useful in our world. Um, but it's not, I don't, it's not critical, but the minute you hurt yourself, you'll wish you had some, Mm -hmm. um, and we're all going to hurt ourselves someday. So I, I recommend, you know, without sounding like I'm up on a soapbox, everybody should have basic first aid knowledge and a first aid kit with them. No, I, I, those are the, those are really the two key skills in my mind for someone who's going to go exploring. The rest of it is what do you take with you? Okay, so the rest of it, we're going to have some skills applied to some equipment. So what do you think are the, or what do you see as the essential equipment for, for ADV essentials? Um, well, it's funny. We did a video uh, on our YouTube channel that we haven't put up yet, but we're working on it about what to pack, what to take with you. But everyone is going to have different requirements. Um, most of my travel, I'm a trip leader, so I carry with me things that serve the rest of the group I am leading or whatever. But stuff to carry with you, you need some basic tools and a tip on tools. Um, and this is pretty common knowledge, but for, for uh, folks who are just getting into this, everyone should have a tool roll that is specific to their motorcycle. Um, several companies sell bike and model specific toolkits, you should have one. And then any maintenance you do on your motorcycle should only be done with tools in your tool roll because then you know you have everything you need. So we need a tool roll and basic stuff to fix. We need tire repair stuff because nice thing with a car, you're out in the back country in a Jeep or a truck, you have a spare tire. Jack it up, change the tire. Get a flat with a bike, most folks don't have a spare. So being able to repair the tire you have and know how to do it, another critical skill. You need the tools and you need the ability. Um, so we have basic tools, we have tire repair stuff. We've talked a little bit about navigation, thus people need a GPS. Uh, however, one should always have a paper map uh, of the area that they're going into because sometimes GPSs break or stop working and or uh, you can, don't get the field of view on a GPS that you can with a paper map when you unfold it mm-hmm. to just get big points of reference. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then uh, there are two other things that I think are critical. Um, one is to be able to communicate from the backcountry. Let's say you're 30 miles, I keep saying 30 miles out, um, because in most places in California, that's about as far as you're going to get before you have some other resource. 30 to 50 miles is about as far into the backcountry as you can go. Um, so uh, what happens if you break down? What happens if you leave your lights on, the bike goes dead, and you just, you can't start it? Everything's fine, but you can't start your bike. How do you let the world know where you are? Mm-hmm. So um, I carry a satellite phone. Uh, at the very, very least, people should have with them a spot or in-reach device that allows them to text out and uh, let people know where they are. Um, and I, I, uh, it sounds a little high and mighty, but I feel like if anyone in our marketplace can afford a, a, a legit adventure bike, whether it be a BMW or a KTM or a Super Tenere or whatever, they can afford a satellite phone. They're five or 600 bucks and 20 bucks a month to keep a service plan. 
So that lets you talk to people, tell them you're okay, tell them what's going on, and so on. And, and that's, that's sort of like insurance, isn't it? I mean, you know, you buy insurance and you think nothing of it because it's required. But with something like this, people look at it and go, oh, I, I don't want to pay that that much for the device. But the thing is, you're not only buying it for you, you're buying it for your family as well. And I'm, I'm not here to sell <laughs> Spot or Garmin, um, but I just think it's one of those things that um, you, the, it's a load that you put on your family when you disappear and you have no contact. You're right. Well, and so, you know, the Spot device and or the Garmin allows people at home to track you and just see how you're doing and what you're doing. Now, some folks probably don't want that. Um, but, but just the simple ability to reach out. If you are alone in the middle of nowhere with no way to communicate and 30 miles to walk, um, that can be life-threatening if it's hot and you're in the desert in the summertime. Um, so, you know, for 600 bucks, you can get a satellite phone. For 400 bucks, you get the latest in-reach device that uh, has its own phone number so people can, they don't need to reply to your text. They can just send you a text anytime. Um, Technology is jumping ahead real fast. Um, can, can, can we go back to an original topic, something I thought about that I, uh, I would like to throw out about skill to some degree, but it's about judgment as well okay. because it's, it's important. It's important. Um, because it triggered when you talked about insurance. Um, when we, when we're teaching our off-road classes, uh, I ask people, I say, folks, um, there is a, a way to pretty much assure that you're never going to have uh, pilot error accident in the boondocks. And if you knew that, how happy would you be? And everybody's like, oh, wow, wow that, that's pretty hard. And I said, yeah, well, there actually is one really easy way uh, to fix this. I said, how many of you have homeowner's insurance? Everybody raises their hand. How many of you have medical insurance? Everybody raises their hand. How many have auto insurance? Everybody raises their hand. I joke and say, how come you're wasting all that money? And they giggle and I say, look, there is a way to write yourself an insurance policy for adventure riding, and that is to simply slow down. Mm. One of the biggest problems I see is, especially with men, having 120 or more horsepower that does really fun things with a twist of the wrist, most people ride beyond their ability levels because, for the most part, they get away with it. But most accidents I have seen are because people were going too fast and they didn't have the skill to manage a stress moment when something happened. They realized they came into a turn too fast. Well, shit, they're screwed. They, they can't hit the brakes. They can't stop. The, the apex is too tight and off the road they go and have a big wipeout. If everybody rode at 60 to 70% of their ability levels, they have time to make good decisions. Mm. So for whatever your listeners may take away from that, if you're riding really close to the threshold of your ability, you have to concentrate so much on your ride that you're not seeing what's around you. And that's the whole point of this, I think. Right. Slow down, enjoy the roses, you know, smell the roses, see the beauty of the backcountry, and you can really only appreciate it if you're going slow enough to relax. So anyway, we're done with the insurance makes, question. <laughs> makes, makes sense. It definitely makes sense. No, I, I want to jump back to skills. Now, tire repair or tire changing, would you say that's that's a basic skill that you really need to have? That's, yeah, because you don't have a spare. So if you get a flat, you have to be able to fix it. So you need an air pump or you need those little CO2 cartridges or even a hand pump, like a bicycle pump. They're small, they're cheap, and they always work. Um, yeah. But they take some time to pump your tire back up. 
So some way to inflate the tire, some way to repair the tire. And you buy a tire repair kit at Track Auto for eight bucks. It's got rubber cement. It's got the two tools you need to insert the plug and it's got eight or 10 plugs. Yeah. Or if you're running tubeless, a, a spare tube. And, and and once you learn how to do that, you're going to know exactly what you need to pack for that. And as you said to, before, and we right. always talk about on the show is using your tool roll for your regular maintenance. So you know what you need and you know, you don't get to taking off your wheel and find out you don't have the socket to take off your ABS sensor or something like that. You know, so you can't get your wheel off without, without damaging it. So right. that's really important. Right. Um, what other skills, like what other skills should you be able to do with your bike? I mean, how mechanically skilled should you be do you think well if i think uh, well you know that 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 opens up a big uh, a big topic because you should have at least baseline mechanical skills you should know how to use a wrench and a socket set and you should tinker a little bit with your bike before you go out in the back country learn how to take your wheel off both front and rear um and learn how to take take an old tire and learn how to patch it or how to put a plug in it. Okay. Now, uh, as far as uh, equipment goes, um, there are some things that I wanted to throw out there and, and see what we thought about. Um, what about some quality straps? Well, it never hurts to have them. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep a couple of straps in my saddlebag, but I got to tell you, um, I've used them twice, maybe in my career, uh, to strap something on that fell off that needed to be strapped on. Um, I don't think it's mandatory, but it's nice to have if you have the space. If you were to pull out your, your little repair kit, not, not necessarily your tool roll, but let's say some sort of repair kit that you would have with you where, you, where you'd have things like your duct tape, et cetera, in there, what would you have in there? Well, I have all that in my tool roll. Um, you can all that, you, have, got, you got duct tape and stuff in your tool roll. I wrap duct tape around, um, you know, maybe a foot and a half or two foot, uh, wrapped around some of the wrenches in the tool roll. Hmm. That's how I carry it. Okay. Um, why? So um, I carry three things. Those little, little things. Um, a little roll of uh, high quality stainless steel wire, um, zip ties, duct tape, and some electrical tape. Uh, and I have a small roll of self adhesive. Um, um, I forget what they call it. Um, you can tape up fuel lines with it. It doesn't have uh, like glue, like a tape does um, friction tape. You stretch it. And as you wrap it around, it bonds molecularly to itself. You can fix radiators, fuel lines, brake lines. I have a little roll of that as well. Do you you know the brand name of that? I knew you were going to ask me. Uh, No, not off the top of my head. Some sort of friction tape. you You can get it at any auto parts store. Okay. Uh, another thing I was going to mention is spare key. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't usually carry one. Um, <laughs> really? You don't carry a spare key. So what, what would happen if you, if you had any sort of problem where you lost your key? Well, I don't ever move my key from that special little pouch that is in the sleeve of my jacket. Hmm. Um, you know, the BMW jacket's got that little window. I'm, I'm sure the Germans put their passport or their driver. I just keep my key in that. I don't carry a spare key. Okay. If um, you, I've never lost my key in my life. When you go on a long trip, you, you don't carry a spare with you? When I went to South America, um, I had a spare that we kept in our support truck. Um, but on like our trips here in the U.S., no, I don't. I, I just don't. Okay. What about um, J.B. Weld? Someday that, someday that uh, yes. And I was going to mention J.B. Weld and maybe 
that's a skill that people should practice with. Mixing that stuff up and seeing how it works. JB Weld is important. I carry that with me along with uh, a steel stick, which is not a, it's a, are you familiar with them? Yeah. Steel stick. Yeah. Okay. So I carry both JB Weld and, and steel stick. JB Weld sort of fills in cracks and, you know, while it's fluid, it'll kind of ooze around. Steel stick doesn't really do that, but it's, it, it hardens faster than, uh, than JB Weld does. Yeah. The steel stick is, is more of a, a putty um, that you're mixing up rather than liquids. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We use, we use steel stick for cracked valve covers and we use JB Weld for other things. Oh, cracked valve covers. That's because you're riding those, those bikes with the cylinders sticking to the side. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> what about, um, what, cause you mentioned about the, the possibility of getting back somewhere and having a dead battery. Do, do you carry um, one of those small, you can get those small batteries that are, that are quite powerful for boosting vehicles. I, I do carry one of those. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, and I'm having a hard time remembering names of products today, but, but there's a handful of brands. Um, that make those. And yes, I have one of those. Anything else? Um, I carry one other thing that uh, I think everyone should consider. And that is, let's just say again, bike breaks down out in the middle of nowhere and you just can't get anybody to come get you that day. Let's just say whatever. Um, You're too far away or you just can't find anybody that can drop everything and come get you. And let's say you got to spend the night out in the boonies. Now what? Uh, I have a I have a small bag that I've prepared that I call my what if kit, and it fits into the lid of my saddlebag. It's not very big. It's maybe um, 14, 15 inches long, three inches thick, eight, nine inches wide. Um, I have a small stove. I have some food. I have a bivy sack. I have hand warmers. I have uh, an extra pair of glasses. I have um, what else do I have in there? Stove, food, some sleeves, a little of those little Starbucks Via things. Um, I carry a jet boil stove. That's the stove that's in there. I have a little blanket, um, some toilet paper, just the basics. So I don't starve, freeze, and or be miserable if I have to spend the night somewhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, for many reasons, carry one of those. I got stuck once. I vowed I would never, ever <laughs> <laughs> travel without all the stuff I needed to comfortably spend a night, um, a flashlight, a knife, a fire starter, some other things like that are all in that kit. Okay. Final thoughts um, on, on people heading out, the essentials, the essential thought process on heading out for adventures. Final thoughts. Well, take, so take the time to pack properly. You know, a lot of folks just, jump on their bike and take off. And halfway through the day, they say, I wish I had this, whatever that might be. Um, Think carefully through what you might need and carry it. Um, Know how to navigate, be smart, use good judgment, get a class, learn how to ride the bike, be more, you know, because the more you know about all of this that we've talked about today, the more relaxed and confident you'll be. And when you are relaxed and confident, you're going to enjoy this whole process of uh, backcountry travel more than if you're nervous. Does that make sense? That is great. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I really appreciate being on the show again. Thank you for uh, thinking of me. 
That was Jim Hyde from his Adventure Training Center as he gets ready right now for his Adventure Days coming up. You can find out more about him and what he's doing at his website, rawhide-offroad.com. And of course, that link is in the show notes as always. Stick around because after the break, we're going to come back and tell you how to make a 24-hour emergency kit that could save your life. Stay with us. You know, it wasn't that long ago that when you went to look for a motorcycle book, you didn't have that many choices, particularly when it comes to stories. Nowadays, it seems like we've got so many choices out there um, of motorcycle books about adventures and about motorcycles themselves. Just so many new things are coming out. So it's really a great time to be into reading uh, about motorcycles. Road Dog Publication specializes in motorcycle travel books. That's what they do. They're the publishers of so many great titles like Andy Benfield's The Wrong Way Round. We had Andy on here a while back. Um, Zoe Cano's book. She's got a number of titles under Road Dog. We had Zoe on here. Um, of course, there's always Graham Field, his books In Search of Greener Grass, Eureka and Different Natures, all through Road Dog Pub uh, publications in North America. Um, even the publisher, Mike Fitterling, has um, Thoughts on the Road and Northeast by Northwest, two books by himself. All Road Dog books are available at fine bookstores everywhere, or you can go directly to the publisher at rooddogpub.com. And, and by the way, you can ask at any bookstore for them to order it from the national catalog because it's easy to get. Um, everybody has access to that. And by the way, here's some news. I don't think this has been released yet. Road Dog Publications has two new books um, from new authors coming out early this summer and this spring, both by Spanish authors. One's a beginning ADV rider getting his feet wet in Morocco, and the other one is uh, on old dual sport riding from Spain to Mongolia. They both sound like they're going to be interesting stories uh, available at Road Dog Pub. Anyway, drop by their site, rooddogpub.com. And uh, of course, anytime you're dealing with them, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. See and be seen. That's what they say at Cyclops Adventure Sports. They're the makers of a huge array of lighting for motorcyclists. And even if you don't ride at night, auxiliary lighting can make the difference of being seen or not. A story that's all too familiar in the motorcycle world. It is a great way to ensure that you're spotted or at least add to your visibility on the road. Have a look at the uh, plug and play style lighting that they have. LED headlight replacements uh, as well at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops also makes the Evo turn signal system. And I really like this. It turns your front signals into bright white driving lights and your rear signals into super bright red brake lights. Now, they both work as signals as well. But as you're riding along, you step on the brakes, you've all of a sudden got extra brake lights. Again, see and be seen. And those bright LEDs really snap the attention of the car behind you. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. Life is full of risks. There's no doubt about that. And I think us motorcyclists understand that probably better than most people. But we can mitigate our risks by doing our due diligence, taking some courses, learning and practicing skills, being aware and using good judgment as well, like Jim Hyde just told us a few minutes ago. 
And another thing we can do is try to prepare ourselves for the unexpected by building a 24-hour emergency kit. Now, I'm talking about getting out in the backcountry here. So anytime you head into the wilderness or off the beaten track, you need to be a little more self-sufficient, at least in the short term, because very likely the farther you are from a major center, the longer it's going to take for emergency services to get to you. That's where our 24-hour emergency kit comes into play. Now, the idea here is to have a a very small kit that will fit into just about any pack that has your necessities for life, or at least some things that may help you over that 24 hours or should help you over that 24 hours until you can get help. At least that's giving you a 24-hour window. Essentials, though, not a full survival plan or full survival kit, but the essentials. Now, for this next segment, I wanted to talk with someone who has not only done plenty of remote wilderness travel, but someone who also has a solid base of medical training. And as it turns out, I already knew the perfect guy for the job, my friend, John Bestfather. John's been a wilderness guide since I think he's 19 or 20 years old. He's now a flight paramedic in the Yukon and has extensive wilderness travel experience and deep medical training. He's going to walk us through his 24-hour emergency kit. My name is John Bestfather, and I'm from Whitehorse, Yukon, originally from Guelph, Ontario, and uh, I work as a critical care flight paramedic. Uh, Yeah, so I've been obviously an outdoorsman all my life, climber, a cyclist, a paddler, uh, done lots of big trips, uh, even cycled across Canada in 2011. Um, But I've also worked as a guide, as a sea kayaking guide on the West Coast. And I've also worked as a uh, dog sledding guide in the Canadian Rockies. And I worked as an ice climbing instructor in New Zealand. Um, So I've done quite a bit of uh, guiding off and on. I've actually guided up here in in Whitehorse in the Yukon as well as a paddling guide, a canoe guide. And I do teach wilderness medicine for our company too. So I travel around doing that. One other thing I also do is I uh, I volunteer on a specialized search and rescue team that specializes in going in for patients uh, that are injured or need help being extricated in remote locations in in the Yukon Territory. John, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Awesome. Well, happy to be here. So, I mean, you and I go back uh, a lot of years and um, I know from that that you've always been into outdoor stuff and and you're doing it all the time. As a matter of fact, you're getting ready for a big trip right now. Yeah, uh, quite a big trip. Probably uh, my biggest so far. What is that? Uh, So in May, I'm going to be attempting with two other uh, guys uh, an attempt on Mount Logan. So we're going to do a ski mountaineering ascent, hopefully, of Mount Logan. What's involved with that? Is that um, just a thing where you just decide you're going to go and you put a pack on and you head off? Well, in super simplistic terms, yes. But uh, no, there's a bit more logistics and uh, training and commitment level to it. But it's uh, we've known we've been going, we're going in about, uh, we've been working on this for probably half a year now. We're approaching that, uh, getting ready, training. Um, we have a trainer that's training us to be super fit. We're working on our gear. We go out and do, uh, sort of, uh, get on our skis together and all that. So it's, it's basically piecing it all together and, and building up till May when we go. Mm, yeah. That, that's why I'm asking that because it, it's, it, this isn't like a, you know, a weekend climb that you're going to do. This is, what would, what would it be compared to the a mountain that everybody would know? Would it be like an Everest climb or something like that? 
Uh, well, most people know Denali or uh, McKinley in Alaska, so that's the highest in North America. So um, Mount Logan is Canada's highest peak. It's just under 6,000 meters or just under 20,000 feet. So it is sort of a similar location because it's in the Yukon um, and similar to the range there. Uh, what makes it pretty unique uh, Mount Logan is it's sort of within that big mountain range, which is the biggest uh, non-polar ice field. Um, and it's, so it's a giant, huge area of snow and glacier. And it, um, and it actually, Mount Logan has sort of the biggest footprint, I think, uh, pretty much any mountain in the world. So it's spread out. So it is quite just this massive mountain. But yeah, McKinley would be the, the closest comparison, I would say. And you told me before, though, that this, this one's quite technical as far as, uh, not technical climbing, but it, but it's very difficult. Yeah, it, it's more of a, um, it's a committing climb. And again, it doesn't have the technicality of some other big mountains, uh, but we are still roped up. We're traveling with skis uh, over crevasses and, and that. Um, but Generally, it's not a crazy technical route where we're climbing with ice axes and this and that. However, it is quite committing in that it's super remote and you're flown in by a ski plane, dropped off, and pretty much where you're dropped off is where the, the, the planes can fly. And from there, you have about 25 kilometers to the top and you do it sort of the siege style of, you know, about four camps along the way and you climb up and then come back, then move your camp, then have a rest day and you kind of repeat that. However, the weather there, as it just rolls off the Pacific and hits the, the mountain range, really just drops everything on there. And uh, I, I, I haven't been yet, but uh, my one climbing, par- uh, climbing partner, he's, he's done multiple attempts and uh, the weather there is insane. You can have wind that destroys tents. Um, it could be snowing or blowing snow so hard that it's drifting on top of your tent that your tent will collapse if you're not shoveling it off. Um, you know, there's days you can get stuck windbound and you can actually be windbound for weeks, uh, for a long time. And so getting picked up by the plane at the end of the trip can even be a question mark on which day will actually work. So you do need to prepare, uh, extra food and supplies for at least a week on top of your climbing time. Mm, So what length of time in total are you preparing for? About 20 days. So if everything went to plan and everything worked out great for us, probably about 10 days up the mountain and, and down, but uh, most likely there'll be some some weather days there. So we have at least another uh, you know week or more of extra days of extra food. And that climbing partner that you just mentioned, that this is his, I think, fourth attempt? Actually, it's his fifth. Fifth attempt. So that yeah. sort of gives you an indication. The other ones have been scuttled for weather reasons? Uh, yeah, weather. Uh, I did have sort of an incident at one, uh, one of the um, climbs and they decided to turn around. Nobody was hurt, but uh, close call. Uh, another time, you know, gut instincts on the entire team said no. Again, this is, you know, above 10,000 feet. Uh, you're in an area where you do have altitude sickness. He got um, high altitude pulmonary edema at 1.2 and had to turn around. So um, there's many sort of factors, you know, it's basically think of it as walking on the moon or another planet. There's a lot of stuff going on and you got to have everything right to continue on. Mm. Well, obviously, that's much more extreme than we're going to talk about today. But before we get into that, I, I want to talk about what you do for a living. So so what exactly is that that you, that you described at the start? Yeah, so I do a couple of things. The main job I, I do is I work as a critical care flight paramedic. Um, so I've worked as a paramedic for quite a few years, about seven years now, uh, and moved out uh, from Ontario to the Yukon. Uh, and there I, uh, I work as a flight paramedic. So in an essence, it is sort of like doing um, regular calls with a, a plane uh, because we do service the sort of the small communities in the Yukon. 
Uh, Yukon has roads, but um, not some areas are super long drives. Uh, Old Crow in the Arctic Circle, you can't drive up to. Uh, so it's a flying community. So if there's somebody who's sick, they go to a health center. And if they're very sick or they just need to come down, we'll fly up and get them. Um, so we do a lot of in-territory flying, uh, moving patients. And then we also take patients from Whitehorse itself down to Alberta and into our main spot we go is Vancouver uh, to bring patients down there because of the sort of a small population in the Yukon around 40,000. There's not much in the way of specialty for uh, for healthcare, like cardiology, neurology, all that. So they need to go to another center. So we bring them down. Mm, it's Wow. That, that, that adds a whole uh, another level of risk to the job, doesn't it? You're a paramedic on the ground and then in flight, you've got the, well, the perils of flight, obviously. And then also there has to be um, complications with flying people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially with uh, the very sick, which often is the people we're bringing down. Um, yeah, you know, oxygenation is a huge issue is, and uh, altitude as you go up. Um, so that's, it's, uh, it is a challenge. It's actually quite challenging medicine, but that's, that's what also we find enjoyable about it is um, we get to kind of have all the toys and do all the fancy stuff and, uh, you know, basically work as a respiratory therapist, a doctor, a paramedic and, you know. Uh, and a nurse all at once in a small moving cigar tube that shakes and has bad light and it's noisy and vibrates. So a uh, little bit of challenge there yet. You think the bad light thing could be cured though? Yeah, <laughs> you think, well, we got a headlamp and all that, but <laughs> yeah. Well, preparedness is what we're talking about. Obviously nothing as extreme as what you're planning to do right now um, with your mountain climb, but we're talking about being prepared. And in this case, it's it's motorcycle riders that are heading off um, possibly just on a day trip, maybe a multi-day trip, possibly even to another country. Um, but um, in a lot of cases, I think riders forget that, you know, an hour ride in is a lot longer walk out. In particular, if you had a problem, you had an injury or, or anything like that happens. And there even is the possibility that you could be stuck somewhere and end up staying overnight. And, and that's what we're going to talk about is, is being prepared. So you've come up with um, or, or maybe you already had this list of, of what um, you would think would be sort of the, the bare minimum, uh, I think, is, is how we're going to approach this. Have you got this broken down into categories? Uh, yeah. So totally to give you an overview, I have I carry myself sort of like three different kits, not all at once. Um, or even four little kits, but um, one of them is sort of my survival sort of slash uh, medical kit um, that I have. And it's it's something small um, that I'll have in my bag. Uh, and that just kind of goes everywhere with me. And so we'll, we'll talk more about that one. The other two I have is sort of like an expedition kit for multi-people. And so one I have in a Pelican case, which is quite heavy. Uh, and then I have sort of a version of that in a lighter bag for more like a hiking trip. Um, but I think, yeah, you're more interested in talking about the, the sort of smaller uh, medical survival one. Yeah. And I guess what it really has to be is a size that, um, and I think this goes for any activity, it has to be a size that you can comfortably take with you. Because if you start getting something that's too big and bulky, then you're going to tend to leave it back um, and, and not take it on your shorter jaws. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the most important thing is it's super easy to pack big kits and even the ones you buy often that are sort of pre-made they're they're huge and you know a few times you put them in a you know i think in a backpack but you know you're putting them into a bike or something like that it's going to take up a lot of room and if that's the case especially if you're doing a doing an overnight trip you need that space so just having something small and it's not a lot of things but there's a lot of little things that can help you in a situation and it really comes down to simple basics 
Okay, that's what I was going to say. Are are there some basics? Are there a list sort of of basics, uh, at least that maybe even ideology of um, the thought process you need to go through when you're planning to do something like this, when you're planning to pack a kit? Yeah, um, and and uh, the basic ones I, I look at is some type uh, something for food, something for shelter, something for signaling, um, something for water purification, uh, knife, uh, fi- uh, fire starter, and maybe some small uh, first aid kit supplies and some pain medication. That's sort of uh, your, your general. Okay. So when you're going through this, like, like for instance, um, well, I guess let, let, let's just take it one at a time. And, and I guess we got to be somewhat general in this, in particular when we're talking about um, what's inside a first aid kit, because that can be, you know, quite an ordeal. Um, do you actually have a, physically, a physical list of all this stuff? Uh, yeah, I have a bit of a list here and uh, I kind of know my little, my little pack. It's probably about, uh, I would say it's less than five liters. It's probably like uh, maybe a little two liter zip up bag sort of thing I use. Um and just to explain why I sort of have survival and medical put together is uh, often this is what you want to have in your bag. If something happens, you have with you all the time. You might pull from this for like blisters or something like that all the time. Um, when you get into the more of the bigger kits or the bigger first aid stuff and all that, um, usually you're on a trip. So you don't really need survival equipment with you because you're probably carrying a lot of that with you. Um, whereas this one sort of does both because sometimes I imagine when you go out riding, you're not, you know, oh, I'm bringing this, I'm bringing that. If you're going on a big trip, you're going to plan, you're going to plan and you're going to take all of those, um, you know, maybe you're going to break a tent, maybe you're going to miss a sleeping bag or a sleeping pad. You have some sort of a shelter or tarp with you. But when you're just going out for a small ride or just out for the day, you may not have that thing. So having a few of the survival items with you is sort of key. Mm, so with, with these packs, you said you already have them made up. You've got them made up there and you just sort of grab one, whichever is suitable for the activity you're doing. Yeah, generally. And uh, this small sort of medical survival kit, that's my go-to. I throw it in my bag, whatever I'm doing. It's just there. And it's a good sort of peace of mind to know if something goes wrong or I've all of a sudden got to spend a night out, I have enough to get me through the night. Is it going to be a super comfortable night? No, absolutely not. Um, But I'm going to be able to get through. And it's, uh, you know, in in some cases it may save your life, but who knows. Before we get into going through each of these categories, what about communications? Uh, yeah, communication is always a, a sort of tough thing, and it depends where you are. Um, it depends um, what you have, what you're using. The main thing for communication, too, is letting somebody know where you're going. But I kind of recommend having at least two methods of communication when you're going out into the wilderness. Give me an example. What would you take for two comms? Uh, so generally, I do have my cell phone with me. And uh, for us, where we are in the Yukon, I, I bring an inReach. And that's often because we don't have good self-service. Um, and they're a little bit more reliable for getting messages through. So that's generally what I'm bringing. Mm. And, and we're, we're not going to get into the whole traveling with another person. But there's, oh, it's obvious that another person certainly increases your level of safety. Um, so l- let's look at this this list that you have here. The food and shelter is, like you said, I think you made a really good point there because if you're on a multi-day trip, you're definitely going to have it. But if you're only going out for the day, you're probably not going to have this. So what do you do to improvise for this for a shorter trip? Uh, yeah, well, in general, um, say you're going out for the day, you're probably packing maybe some food for your lunch and that. This is sort of an aside to that. This is in the medical or survival kit that I have as I actually sort of jam like basically just a, a power bar or something. Um, I usually I even have some sort of like high calorie 
coconut butter in one of them, um, which is just like a squeeze thing, um, something I could heat up and it wouldn't taste that great, but it, it gives me lots of calories. So you just basically want something that's calorie rich. So if you're having a bad time, you need something in your belly. Again, this isn't going to feed you for a long time, but it's going to get you through that 24 hours. Um, so just something that's sort of non-perishable that you can jam in there. I usually use sort of a power bar for that. So 24 hours is, is what you aim at when, you, when you're looking at that. You're thinking a 24-hour window. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these, this kid is sort of, you know, will get me through the 24 hours. Probably not going to look great at the end of it, but um, just to be able to get you through, that's, that's sort of the main thing. Because this is something that you're taking with you every day. You're not using it. Usually, it's just in, in that case, it does happen. Okay. So, and, and if you now, when it comes to shelter, if you're, if you're camping, obviously you have your tent you've, you've got your sleeping pad, as you mentioned that you have all that, but what do you, what do you pack for those times when you have no intention on being overnight? Uh, yeah, for, so for shelter, I have actually just a small sort of bivy emergency shelter, um, that I got and it's just basically a bivy. So it goes around your body with a hood and all that that you could get into. So that's sort of the emergency shelter, uh, but also having a knife with you, uh, to maybe construct anything or using wood, depending where you are. Obviously I know a lot of people are, are traveling different places. Um, so something you can construct that way. How about a tarp? Uh, tarp would be great too. It is a bit bulkier, I would say. For my small kid, I usually don't carry that, but I would absolutely consider it. And especially in the winter or in really austere environments, I would consider bringing sort of a, a small shelter thing. But you, usually they're a little bit bigger. Um, I would say shelter first off for you to just survive, but having something bigger would be great. Added bonus, but just depends how much room you got. Your bivy sack must be pretty small because you, you can get a like, silicon tarp that's very small. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. The bivy sack is, is quite small. Again, uh, my aim for this kit is to be super compact. So you pick it up in the palm of your hand and you just throw it in your bag. Like mm, that's okay. sort of the size of it because you're going to use it and you actually are going to take it everywhere. Uh, that way too. So say you stop, you pull over with your bike and you go, Oh, I want to go hike up that to that lookout or something, or you're going to go somewhere and leave your bike. This is sort of uh, something that I want to be able to throw in my pack and I'm not going to worry that it's too heavy. If the, the little kit is, is too big or too heavy, even when you're out on your trip or you're, out for the day, if you, you know, stop and leave some equipment, then often you might leave that behind. And often maybe that's when something happens. So mm, okay. that's that, how small we want it. Very good point. Okay. Okay. So what's next on the list? Uh, so next thing I do is um, some water purification. Okay. Uh, so for that, I usually have sort of just some aqua tabs or something you can put into water um, and uh, uh, just purify it so you can drink it. Um, usually... Uh, I have a, a water bottle or something with me already, so I'm not worried about having a container for something, but just something that I can, if I can find some water and scoop it, um, then I can actually purify it. Mm, okay. And you're not talking filtering. This is just purification just for Giardia and other waterborne viruses, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Like ideally, you know, we have a pump, we have a full filter system and all that. But again, those things are bulky and you're probably carrying some water with you. This is just to bolster that. And the other thing that sort of goes in in part with that is is some sort of a fire starter. So I actually usually would carry, you can get these little commercial made sort of fire starters, um, you know, uh, that you open one at a time, you put them underneath and it just burns for a long time as you're, if you're getting wood on it or something like that. Um, But if you do have a way of, making a fire. And if you do have sort of a little metal uh, container or something like that, you can boil your water as well. But for this, if you didn't have that, at least if you found some water, you can purify it. Mm-hmm. And again, the the water purifier and the fire starter, we're talking really small little tablets. 
Yeah, exactly. They're like little, almost like they come in, they kind of look like candy wrappers, like that sort of size. Okay. Um, some people will carry uh, like lint from their dryer. You can pull that out. That burns quite well. Uh, some people will carry flint, uh, different things or little uh, soaked wood chips and stuff like that. There's all little stuff you can do, but just something that's going to allow you to help make that fire. It's super easy to make a fire in great conditions, but a lot of times this is when it's wet, it's damp, everything's, it's not going well. So to be able to have a lighter, and that's one of the things we have to mention too, is having some sort of fire starter. So um, usually a lighter and some matches or something um, that you can light that and let it burn for a while while you're getting the kindling and everything else going on it will really help you quite a bit. Mm, that was that's where I was going was uh, a lighter. I was going to say lighter or matches. I mean, there, you used to always talk about matches. Everybody had waterproof matches, and I know there's there's um, specialty emergency match matches you can get mm-hmm. that have a, a lot of um, um, substance on them that keeps them burning. I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but when you strike it, it, it burns very very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, there's those special matches, but who carries matches? Who wants matches nowadays? I mean, <laughs> because you use them once and they're done. Yeah, I it, it's funny. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say there's one thing that always works or is perfect. I would just say having multiple of something or, or different items that do the same thing is your backup. So, you know, even if you had two two lighters is better than one or matches and a lighter is better than just a lighter or just, just matches. So having two sort of systems is, is great. Mm, and what kind of, I have to ask this, what kind of lighter do you, do you prefer? Honestly, in, in the little kid like this, I just have one of those, uh, you know, buy at the corner store Bic lighters in there. And I've got some matches as well. So, You're not into uh, Zippo lighters. Uh, no, um, I do have sort of like a really nice uh, lighter. But in general, and this might sort of explain sort of my mentality with this stuff, too, is I'll actually be carrying something else with my <clears throat> stuff. I usually have a bit of a toilet kit and that has sort of a nice refillable lighter that I use with butane. So that's sort of with me already. So this, again, this little kit is to sort of bolster to add to what I already have. Mm. Um, So it does have a a few little repeats of things, but again, it's just there as a backup. And what about the Flint Striker? Uh, Flint uh, can be good. Um, I actually have, uh, I have a knife that actually has like a flint built into it. So you can pull out the back of it in that flint is, uh, it is quite a handy thing, but it's, you need, it's nice to have sort of dry stuff that lights with flint. Um, so carrying, you know, something with it uh, or making shavings for that really works. If you just have a flint and a bunch of sweat logs, it's not really going to help you. But I'd really recommend if you are going to carry flint that you actually try lighting a fire with it before. There is a method to it. It's not just strike and away it goes. You actually kind of scrape it and build up a bunch of material. So then when you strike and create the spark, it has something to burn a little bit more. So highly recommend it. I'd say it's just, again, one of those extra things to have as a backup. Mm, okay. And I was going to mention the, the Zippo lighter. The one thing I do like about that is the fuel is in a, a little container that's easy to carry with you and it's easy to refill. Mm-hmm. The one thing that always concerns me with butane is as I've had butane containers get the, the lid knocked off in a pack and then you end up with your butane drained off all over the place. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one reason I, I sort of lean towards the Zippo lighters, but you know, it's mm-hmm. a, that's a, no, for sure. a personal choice. Okay. So where do we go? What, what's next on the list? Uh, well, we sort of already mentioned having sort of a knife uh, with you. Super good to have one of those. I just I just have a folding blade that locks. Um, I like that just because it's small and compact. You sure you could have a, a bigger knife with you, you know, a fixed blade or something like that. But just having something small that's in there. And I again, this is something that's in the kit itself, which I might have another knife with me already. But this is just sort of that extra. Okay. And next? Uh, next. So... 
um, more sort of getting to the emergency situation that too. Uh, having, uh, ideally you have an emergency light there or something. So maybe a candle, maybe, uh, as really, really tiny headlamp. They sell these really sort of emergency headlamps. It seems this might seem like a lot to sort of buy, but, um, if you are in a situation where you don't have, you know, maybe you didn't bring any light with you, your bike dies, you're stuck there. If you don't have a light, you know, we all pull out our cell phones and use that. Well, maybe you want to keep your cell phone for using for communication. So having a, a really tiny little headlamp that you put in there uh, would be actually quite good. Um, also, if you think of it, having a light that you could actually flash at someone is great as a uh, communication uh, as well. Yeah. And you, you can get some very tiny lights now. I mean, probably the one you have, is it a watch battery style? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they're very, very tiny, and you can carry a few spare batteries with it, and the batteries last for a very long time, so quite mm-hmm. an easy thing. And I know that there's a there's a Petzl one that I have that's oh, it's it's the size of it's the size of a small lighter, really, and it's the whole head strap and everything all tucked into a little plastic container. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, just again one of those things we don't want to be pulling this out and using it all the time. Uh, it's just that backup. But it, this kit is actually, we think of it as like, oh, it's a really rough and tumble survival situation. A lot of times you're just like, oh, I need this. And you have, and you have it in your bag and it's, it's just really good peace of mind. It's really good preparedness. Okay. And what's next? Um, so another, uh, another thing that can be very handy is flagging tape. Um, so having some way, say you're lost or you get disoriented. Um, this is just a way of signaling where you are, where you're going. Flagging tape, it, Sounds quite simple, but it is is one a, a really really handy thing. You can even people can see where you've gone. Uh, that way, if you do have to move or go somewhere, you do have a way of backtracking or, or marking uh, where your bike is or a turn or something like that. Um, you know, I would say it's a very handy little tool that weighs absolutely nothing. I don't take a whole roll. I just roll up a little bit or roll it around the big lighter and tape it or, or something just to have it there. Hmm. You're, you're tying it off on trees or something like that as you go out. Yeah, which is it, it sort of depends on the situation. But, you know, um, say you did have to move usually in, in survival situations, you're staying put. But if you were moving and you did have to you're worried about getting lost or disoriented, having something to tie every once in a while so you can see where you've gone can be quite handy for navigation. Mm. And you'd need a fair bit of it if you're going to if you end up going very far because you will go through a fair bit of tape. Yeah, that's true. Um, again, it's sort of just a little bit to bring. I don't bring a, a whole roll, but. Um, you know, uh, you roll up a little bit and, you know, the size of, I don't know how big that would be, even the size of a, a toonie or something like that. That's, that's probably, that's probably plenty. You, you know, and, and I, I keep popping into my head. I keep having these thoughts of, well, you could put that on the bike, but the whole point is what you said at the start, it needs to be in a kit that you can take on your back. So if you went off on our, for, for a hike, which we often do, you know, you, you ride in somewhere and then you go for a walk somewhere and explore something, you need to have that kit with you. Mm-hmm. So and I, I would even say, uh, you know, we're thinking about this from a motorcycle perspective, but if you have this kit and you go, oh, okay, well today I'm not going out for a ride. I'm actually going for a hike and going this, it's still in the outdoors. You're still, you still might need those supplies. So having a kit you can grab and I, I think of it as a modular system. You're kind of grabbing this, this little modular thing you put in your bag and you know what's in it. And it's just, the, just there in case. Right. Okay. So what's next? Uh, so next thing you would want to do is, is more look at the uh, first aid uh, supplies that you might bring. And these are really quite simple things. Um, 
And uh, the, the main thing uh, is basically just some Band-Aids, uh, something for burns and something for blisters. Just, uh, you know, a little, I have a little Ziploc and I have a bunch of different sized Band-Aids in it. I have like a little uh, thing of burn gel, which you can get from a store. And then uh, just like I sort of, I actually buy a commercial blister kit and then just put it in there and it's got the moleskin you can cut out and all that. Um, it's very simple, but the, that's often what you're using quite a bit. And that's it for your first aid kit? Uh, so we have a little bit of extra things. Um, so we want something for bleeding. Now, it depends on your activity and, and all that, but I actually do carry a tourniquet uh, with uh, with my stuff and uh, a commercial tourniquet. Um, now, they've come back in favor in wilderness medicine. Um, if there is a major arterial bleed, you need to stop the bleeding quick. And they're actually des- they were kind of tried and tested by the army and uh, their design. You can even put them on yourself. Uh, commercial tourniquets work quite a bit better than a, you know, makeshift belt or this or that. They actually do apply sort of really good tension. You can lock it off. Um, it It's something that's extra. I wouldn't say you have to have it. Um, put it this way, though, if someone's going out and they might be chainsawing or this or that, I actually would recommend that they have it uh, with them if you're at risk for a major bleed. And I'd say traveling at high speeds on a bike and coming off it into an object gives you a pretty high risk of of doing a, a good traumatic injury to yourself. So having something to stop major bleeds like that and then having some sort of trauma dressings, um, some like a, a big gauze pad or abdominal pad um, or uh, a pressure dressing is sort of the main one to bring. And I, I carry a, a commercial um, trauma dressing that's basically sealed, vacuum sealed. Um, there's a few companies that have them and they you can wrap them around and they have a piece of plastic or something or a cup that you put over the area that's bleeding and you actually tighten on top of it. Um, a lot of times you'll see old trauma dressings that are just basically a piece of gauze with wrap tensor bandage around it. Those things don't work well at all. They don't apply the type of pressure you need to like a major bleed. Again, this is talking about like a major bleed. Um, so having something like a commercial one where you can actually put pressure on that because we're not looking for all the fancy things um, and have all the right tools and well, we need this and that. We're just saying, okay, we're bleeding majorly. We need to stop that bleeding and get yourself out. Uh, mm. So that's what we're looking for for this. So what you're talking about there is, is something that applies more pressure at the point. Because if you're wrapping just a tension bandage around, like if it was your arm, for instance, mm-hmm. you put tension on the on the whole arm and wrapped around. Whereas the idea with this is to put more point pressure on on the wound itself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well aimed direct pressure is is what you're going for with a major bleed. Um, so again, this is this is what you need. You need something that you can put pressure on there. Okay. Anything else in this kit? Uh, so for this one, I also bring um, some pain medication. Um, so usually just over the counter, whatever people usually take, you know, uh, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, um, you know, just just stuff like that, depending where you're going in that too. Or I would also say <clears throat> if you get heartburn, bringing some sort of like acid reflux tablets or something like that, just little things like that. And honestly, pain medication is probably one of the, the number one used things in my little medical survival kit. Um, you know, you hurt yourself, you do your back in all that, you know, think of how heavy your bike is if you're lifting it and moving it. You, you want something you can take to kind of just get you out. Um, so having something like that, I do carry a little bit of stronger stuff as well. Um, but, um, for that, I, a little, I'm have medical training. So talking to your doctor about, Hey, you know, I'm going on these rides or something like that. Can I, 
uh, can we carry something a little stronger? They might be willing to, to do that, but you need a, a doctor's prescription for anything like that. Okay. And is ibuprofen the choice, your choice? Uh, yeah, it, it would be um, like having both of them sort of, uh, you know, Tylenol and uh, ibuprofen or Advil. Um, that's generally my go to, but it does depend on the person just having I would say it's just more important to have something for pain. Um, that way, you know, if you're in a situation, you get hurt, you just have something to, to, to take the edge off a little bit and help you get out. What about the um, the things like tweezers and et cetera that you often see in, in first aid kits that you buy? Uh, yes, uh, they're not uh, like having maybe a little small pair of tweezers is not a bad idea or something you can clip with. However, it's very easy to put too much when you're doing these kits and to go off. Now, do you, if you imagine, oh, okay, I have an injury in my arm and maybe I need a tweezer. Well, is this something you have to be managing in the field right now or are you going to do it when you get home? Mm. Um, so if I get into more expedition kits, I actually carry wound cleaning supplies and they have quite a few different things like that. Uh, however, um, for something like this, I, d- I don't have a pair of tweezers in there. You absolutely could. Again, I just keeping it simple. So. Okay. What else? Uh, what else? Uh, so as having some sort of uh, oral uh, rehydration, I carry just sort of some like electrolyte tablets. Um, th- those are great just to throw into water. You know, you're having a day, even you're getting a headache and you haven't had, a, you know, enough water or um, you sweat out a lot. Just throwing something in like that, that can actually help quite a bit. And then having some sort of like simple sugar, um, whether or not that's the bar you have in there or even a little pack of honey. Um, a lot of times people, when you're getting cold, um, you know, if you're getting really cold and you're, you're shaking and all that, you use up your, um, your stores of food really quickly when you get cold. And a lot of times if you just have a quick boost of sugar, you feel so much better. Um, so having just like a little pack of honey or something like that in there. And also, uh, it can be, you know, somebody is a diabetic that you're traveling with and, uh, they have, they're having an issue giving simple sugar is, is one of the treatments for them. So when you say a little pack of honey, you're talking like the kind you get at the restaurant sort of thing? Yep, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what else? Um, that's generally uh, mostly in there. I do a signaling device too. So I usually have a, sh- uh, a whistle sort of attached to the outside. Um, and I actually have a, a small little pen flare I put in there as well. Again, not necessary, but I in the areas that I'm going, it, it is quite remote at times. So having some sort of a... Um, you know, signaling a plane, that would be a good way um, to do that. They do say in emergency situations that, you know, once you got your your shelter, your food, your, your water, your food, all that sort of sorted, you, you should also be thinking about signaling if you needed to uh, get help from somebody. So having a, a flare for me is, is sort of how I do that. Um, I also have, the, um, there's bear bangers that can attach that as well. And I'm in an area where there are bears. So that kind of does double duty for me that way. Um, again, a lot of these things you might go, oh, well, that makes sense for me or that doesn't make sense for me. It just depends where you are and sort of your application or what you might be using it for. And you said you had you had three kits um, that you have, have assembled. So what changes from your this little kit you're talking about where you take everywhere to the, that big kit where you're going on a longer trip? Uh, yeah, so basically it turns into more of sort of medical kit than it, it is a survival kit. And, and as we mentioned before, it's, it's most likely because you're, you're carrying that stuff already with you. I don't need to carry a shelter with me because I have a tarp, I have a tent, all of that stuff. Um, now, these ones, uh, you know, they get more into the longer term. So when I think about this kit, 
the longer kit, it's, it's basically, it's going to stabilize me for longer. Uh, so if I'm on a trip for multi days with often with multi people, I want to be able to sort of manage a medical situation for multiple days and maybe not even avoid having to emergency evac somebody, but manage them over some time. So that's going to need more supplies, um, more specific things, able to clean wounds, um, more different medications, and then having more of a buffed out sort of bleeding uh, kit and airway and all that sort of stuff. Um, what I should mention too with a lot of this, probably one of the best things you can bring with you is your brain after you've been trained with some wilderness medicine. Because um, if you have all these things, you're, you're bringing them, but you, you don't know or you haven't ever experienced trying to figure out, is this an emergency? Is this not an emergency? Um, it's quite uh, it can be difficult. Uh, so having some sort of training to know, like, hey, I, I mentioned a commercial tourniquet. If you haven't actually tried putting one of those on before or know what it's like, um, that's, that's sort of tough that you were in that situation, you had to do it. Um, so I highly, highly recommend bringing, um, you know, bringing something with you, you know, somebody who's trained and, and has had a little bit of experience with this with a few supplies can maybe make up that difference. I'm glad you went there. That was the last thing on my list to to, to ask about um, first aid training. Because really, I mean, a first aid kit doesn't do much if you don't know what to do with it. It's not the time to sit down and start reading the little instruction pamphlet that comes with a, a lot of them. And with the training, even without the proper first aid kit, you're still much farther ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we have to MacGyver. There'll be times I always joked when I was teaching first aid, uh, you know, they always say, put your gloves on, do this, do that. But it's always those situations where you don't have anything with you and you have to figure it out. <laughs> That's more realistic. But um, yeah, having a lot of this stuff is great. But if you don't know how to use it, it's uh, it's not that helpful. Any other thoughts with this? Any other recommendations? Um, yeah, I would just say um, one of the things, the way I look at it too, I actually carry uh, another little tiny small kit. And I think if you've ever seen those sort of plastic wallets, they're just like, you know, you, you they have a latch and they open and they're, they're quite small. Like they may be the size of like 10 or 11 sort of uh, credit cards stacked together. They're four like credit cards to put that. Mm-hmm. I actually carry something like that. Now for, for people that need medication for um, allergies, um, as I do for um, like uh uh, anaphylaxis for, for wasp and stuff like that. I actually carry that with me. So I actually carry some epinephrine with me, um, and some Benadryl or an antihistamine with me all the time. And that's a little tiny kit that's like in the top of my pack. And it comes with me. I go for a run. I put it in my uh, back pocket. So the way I use that, I was, I spoke before about modular system is if there's something that somebody needs medication wise, that they may need always, always ask your friends, your family, or if you're in a, you're organizing something, um, you need to, to make sure they're bringing that with you. So I always have that with me. And then my kit has a little bit more of that medication. Um, but that way it's sort of a modular system. So I have backups and also that little kit is usually much more handy. And if it is a medication, someone's going to be using often, it's better for them to be taking from that than from your emergency supply. Um, so that's something that I, I always do is I have a little sort of kit with my meds. I have uh, sort of my um, the survival medical kit we talked about, the sort of 24-hour one. Um, and then I might be also be bringing my multi-day expedition kit. And well, why? As we sort of mentioned before, say we're on a, uh, a trip 
and we're, we have that big expedition kit with us, that's great. But then we stop and then we're going to change our mode of transport or something and go off. Well, now I've got my 24 hour kit in my backpack with also that little med thing that I have. So those go with me because they're lighter and smaller. So that's sort of the modular system. And then when you're coming back to where your gear is, that's sort of like your base camp. And that's where, um, especially of a mode of transport, like a bike, you're not worried too much about weight or you're not carrying it on your back. Your bike is carrying it. So you can be a little more, um, you can actually build sort of a bigger kit that would be transported by the bike um, and uh, not worry about it and have something smaller too to take with you when you're not on it. With an EpiPen or an epinephrine pen, is that something you should carry anyway, just in case? I mean, it's for anaphylaxis. Is that something you should you think you should carry? Um, if personally, if it's it's for yourself, uh, only if you you have an allergy and you know of that, uh, I would say you need to uh, to bring it. Now, it really all of this stuff changes when you're responsible for people. Um, if it's a group of friends, you want to make sure you have everything that we all need. But if you are say you're guiding or something like that, you're on an organized ride, something like that. That's the situation where, yes, if people are going to look to you in an emergency, that you should be carrying this. And again, um, having training, again, is what this comes down to, is actually taking a course. They show you how to do it um, so you know what to get. You can buy the EpiPens, but there are, with proper training, and uh, there are some courses out there that actually teach you how to use syringes and needles and actually draw from an ampule. Why would you do that, you might ask, is just it actually, the EpiPens are quite expensive. They don't last that long. Um, and uh, having these are much smaller, more uh, more compact, um, but they do require a prescription from a doctor. So having that sort of stuff with you when you're in, ch- uh, in charge of people is, I would say, absolutely imperative. Um, but if it's just you and your buddies or just yourself, it just depends, um, you know, what sort of conditions you have. All right. Well, that is great, John. I I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And and good luck on your upcoming climb. Thanks a lot, Jim. That was John Bestfather, wilderness guide, first aid instructor, and critical care flight paramedic. John was at his home in the Yukon, Canada. And although John doesn't have a website, you can always check out the Yukon's website if you're interested in what that beautiful place looks like or if you're interested in riding there, traveluconn.com. This episode has been brought to you in part by Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com, Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com, and Max BMW at maxbmw.com. And make sure anytime you're dealing with anyone we mention here, please mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we really appreciate you being a part of it by listening to it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. Remember, all of our shows are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We would love it if you would rate our show. We really need you to go and rate it everywhere you find podcasts, in particular the place you're listening to it. Of course, we want a five-star rating, right? 
Anyway, um, if you could do that, we would love it. And also, this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We need your support. If you're not doing it already, drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Click on the support button and see what we have there. We would love to have you as one of our patron supporters. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. I'm David Peterson, and you're listening to Adventure Writer Radio. (laughs) 